This semester, our teaching series at Cross Life is going to be called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we chose a diamond for the front of this card. Andrew and company handed out 700 of these on MSU's campus today. Yeah, let's give a little round of applause for that. The reason that we chose a diamond for that is because the words of Jesus are a diamond that are of great value. They're a precious truth, and really they're the most important thing in all the world for us to understand. And it's from this diamond that we're going to examine from this angle and from this angle and from this angle and really glean from what is essentially the gospel week after week after week. It's going to be our focus this fall and next spring. These truths, in a sense, gang, are simple. They're simple enough for a five-year-old to understand. The gospel can be understood by a five-year-old, and yet in the same breath, they're complex enough to where you and I can study these truths for the rest of our life and perhaps never reach the depth of their weight. And so we called it the hard sayings of Jesus. And by this title, we really are taking advantage of the dual usage of the word hard. On the one hand, they're hard to understand. And so we're going to focus in on handling the word with care. We're going to hopefully accurately divide the word and make it understandable to you to where when you first read something and you don't understand it, hopefully by the end of the evening, you have a grasp of what that hard saying meant. But the second usage of the word hard is that they're hard to take in. They're hard to digest and to absorb. Once we understand it, then comes the difficult part, and that is to receive it with humility. I'm not going to lie. As I was preparing the calendar for this semester, I was cringing at the keyboard looking at some of these hard sayings. There are some hard truths we're going to consider. And really, the hope is, as an outcome of this study, that we would understand the Word of God better, but that we would also come to love Jesus more. Guys, we're really not going to seek to entertain you. We're not going to try to be funny. But what we are going to do is teach the Scriptures and preach Christ. We're going to preach the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the teaching of Christ, the example of Christ. And my prayer would be that it would ignite a fire in you to follow the Lord and serve Him for the rest of your life. Amen? Amen. I hope you join us in this study. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into the first hard saying this evening. Father, thank you for an evening to pull away. Lord, I know the craziness of moving back into the dorms, Lord, or if uh, they're working and starting up work again. Lord, I know that school is going to start next week and it's going to be hectic and crazy, but Lord, I pray that these young men and women would choose to make you a priority this semester. God, that this priority would be one where they grow closer in their relationship with you than they ever have. And Lord, this evening, I pray, whether believer or unbeliever here tonight, that you would grip our hearts. Lord, convict us from the word. Teach us, Lord, and not just to our brains and to our minds, but Lord, in our hearts, we want to be changed by this evening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew, or turn your phone to Matthew chapter 9. As a rough estimate, there are around 4,200 religions in the world. And among the gamut of religions, you will find a range of beliefs and values ranging from polytheistic views, where there's hundreds of gods, to many monotheistic views, where there's just one god. Now, if you were to survey this gamut of 4,200 religions 
In each of them, you would find a few things that must be believed and a list of things that must be done in order to appease their God or gods uh, in their respective belief system. Again, you really have Pandora's box here when we're talking about what sort of things are required to be done. Just to list a few of the basic ones, though, you may hear something like this. You may hear, in order to go to heaven, you have to believe in God and be a good person. Or in order to go to heaven, you have to do more good than bad. Or in order to go to heaven, you have to try your hardest to keep the religious ceremonies and practices that a certain religion believes. Maybe it's you have to believe in God, be baptized, and read this certain holy book. Maybe it's you have to believe in God, confess your sins, and sacrifice an animal. There are still religions that do that today. Or maybe it's you need to give money to the church, do good works, don't sin, so on and so forth. Friends, this is where Christianity differs, though. Christianity does not say, in order to go to heaven, you must do. Christianity says, in order to go to heaven, you must trust. This is the message of Christianity because this is the message of Jesus. Every other religion's fundamental flaw can really be categorized into one big group, and that is this. It's that they overemphasize the ability of man's work to earn righteousness before God, and they underestimate the punishment of sin. They underestimate the crudeness of sin and the holiness of our God. The message of this book, the Bible, is that the glory of God is on display through redeeming sinful mankind through the blood of Jesus. And so tonight, we're going to consider a passage, one hard saying in particular, that highlights this dichotomy between doing and trusting in self and ceasing from works and trusting in Christ. In Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. It says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you've noticed, you have an outline. And the first point on the outline, if you want to follow along that way, is that Jesus eats with sinners. And before really digging into this hard saying, I think it's going to be helpful to do a little bit of historical background. And the first question I want to ask is this. Who were these Pharisees? Who are these Pharisees to waltz in and ask this question of this man named Jesus? Well, you should know this. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. Literally, the name Pharisee means set apart one. And so their whole idea was to be separate from the rest of society. And keep in mind, in this day and age, this was a theocracy, which meant that their government was supposedly ran by God, which meant that it was run by the people of God. And so as such, the religious leaders were often also the political or social leaders, Now, the specific group that was kind of sat as the government was the Sanhedrin, which consisted of select Pharisees that were appointed to that council. So the Pharisees were a unified group of people who emphasized the importance of obeying the Mosaic law, things like purity and tithing, Sabbath observance, etc. And they equally emphasized the importance of observing their own set of laws, 
These were the oral laws that had been passed down from their fathers. And again, they were equally as binding as the Mosaic law in their eyes. And so really what their forefathers had done is they'd come up with their own set of laws in order to attempt to keep the Mosaic law. And when I say Mosaic law, I'm talking Old Testament, uh, the law that was given to Moses. But friends, here was the result. The result was a catastrophic system of legalism and works-based righteousness. And just listen to how binding this would have been. In an attempt to keep the Sabbath, which was Saturday, in an attempt to keep the Sabbath holy, they would not work, and they had 39 subcategories of what it meant to work. So they had broken the term work down into 39 subcategories in order to cease from working. And within those 39 categories, they had, they had sub-subcategories of not to work. They would limit things like the number of steps someone could take on a Saturday, how many letters they could write. They had to memorize, in order to be a Pharisee, it was required that you memorize the entire Torah, which was the first five books of the Old Testament, word for word. Further, they had strict rules and regulations regarding what they wore, how they ate, how they spoke, how they prayed, so on and so forth, down to every little detail of life. It would have been absolutely binding. So you can imagine, if you were a normal peasant, though, during this day, and these super religious people are dressed differently, and they talk differently, and they pray in the streets, and they're just, they're the religious leaders, it would be kind of intimidating, would it not? And so as such, the the people of that day... uh, Not everyone was a Pharisee, but the people of that day followed the Pharisees' lead. These were the religious leaders. These guys had it figured out, and so they followed their lead. They did what they did. They did what they said. They were the leaders. And I just want to consider kind of a carry forward for a moment, an application. One might say that this is to be expected when the word of God is taken out of the people's hands. Friends, that's why we need to be like the noble Bereans in Acts. We need to be searching and testing and seeing if what is being said is true. That's why none of, no one on this staff is going to teach anything that is not from Scripture. I don't have that much to say, but what I'm going to say is hopefully what God is saying in his word. And in any case, this is what had happened, though, in the first century. The Pharisees were the leaders. They were following their own set of laws and religious rules rather than necessarily the word of God, and the people blindly followed. Now, on the flip side, if you look at verse 10 again and 11, we see, so in 11, the Pharisees come into the scene, but before that, Jesus is sitting with the tax collectors. And again, we see in verse 11, uh, he's dining with tax collectors. And I want to ask, who were the tax collectors? Well, here was the scenario. A tax collector was basically a Jewish trader. So in this time, you've got the nation of Israel, but it's during the Roman Empire. So Rome had conquered much of the world in that time, including Israel. So Rome's government, Roman Roman soldiers were in Israel and controlled the people of Israel. Now, a tax collector was a, a Jewish person, so an Israelite, who was hired by the Roman government to go and collect the taxes of the Jewish people. Let's give a modern-day scenario. Let's say a foreign country comes into the U.S., takes over the U.S., controls our government, our system, our economy, everything, and then they hire some Americans to collect taxes from other Americans to pay back to their country. How do you think people viewed tax collectors? Highly or lowly? (laughs) Lowly. 
uh, you can begin to kind of see the scenario unfolding, right? On the one hand, you've got these religious leaders who were purists in a sense. They wanted to stick to the law and they had even added to it. And yet then you've got these tax collectors who were traitors. They were looked down upon uh, in the same way that a prostitute would have been looked down upon, sinners would have been looked looked down upon, and etc. In fact, in the eyes of the Pharisees and their Jewish followers, tax collectors were the reprobates. They were the rejects that were not to be affiliated with. No, get this, no religious leader, no rabbi would have affiliated with sinners and let alone a tax collector. It was a violation of their self-imposed oral law. And yet this man, Jesus, who was a rabbi and had began teaching publicly, this man, Jesus, this influential and religious man who claimed to be a rabbi, was dining with them, which was one of the closest intimate signs of fellowship. And so you see why there's a problem. Now, with the stage set, I want to take another look at verse 11, and I'd like for you to look at this yourself. In verse 11, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Again, by this point, Jesus was a rabbi. He had 12 men following him, and at times, many, many more, large crowds following him. And that's why the Pharisees come in and they say, why is your teacher, your teacher, he's speaking to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, interestingly, do the disciples ever answer the question? No, Jesus really jumps in here and takes full advantage of an opportunity to teach his disciples, but also to respond to the Pharisees. And his response is most curious, in my opinion. Notice he doesn't even necessarily answer the question that's given, but instead he jumps to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 12. It says, But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. And really what we see Jesus doing here is point two on your outline. He gives an analogy for sin. So he's eating with sinners. Now he's going to give an analogy for sin. And up to this point, we know who the Pharisees were. We know who the tax collectors were. We've observed the question and Jesus' answer. But what I want to ask is this question, and this is really getting to the heart of this passage, is who are the sick that Jesus is referring to? And what is Jesus' intended meaning with the response that he gives? Again, who are the sick and what is his meaning in this response in verse 12? And I'll begin to answer that question by stating the obvious. This is an analogy, right? He is given an analogy, and we know that Jesus gave the perfect analogies. Why? Because he was the Son of God and had a perfect mind. So every analogy Jesus gives is the perfect analogy. And what he relates it to is a medical field. Now, in our day and age, maybe you uh, go in for a checkup once in a while, And maybe you go in when you have a sore throat or a headache or an ear infection and obviously more severe things. But the point is this. Most cultures wouldn't go in for some of the stuff we go into the doctor for, right? Most cultures would not go into the doctor for a routine checkup just in terms of a wellness checkup. And certainly in this day and age, no one went to the doctor who was not sick. You only went to the doctor if you had a severe problem. And so Jesus employs the truth of his day a truth that everyone would have known in order to illustrate a spiritual truth. 
It's really a miniature parable if you think about it. He's using an earthly example to explain and demonstrate a heavenly story. He's using an earthly example to explain a spiritual truth. That's what a parable is. And being that the point of a parable or a story in this manner is the spiritual application, now we have to ask this question and track with me if you've lost it. We have to ask this question of this passage. Who are the people who are spiritually sick? I want to know, who are the people who are spiritually sick and who are those who are spiritually healthy? According to verse 12. Are some born spiritually fit and ready to go to heaven while others are born spiritually sick and in need of healing? Do you do something during your life to become one of those who is spiritually sick? Or how does this whole deal work? Well, I think a a quick survey of the rest of Scripture begins to help us with this answer. In Matthew, flip to the right a few books, or click to the right a few books, to the book of Romans, chapter 3. And in Romans 3, listen as I read verse 10 through 12. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks God. Verse 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. In other words, in three verses here, Paul has condemned all of humanity. He says there is none righteous. And to sum it up in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquity has separated you from the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, You were dead in your trespasses. And he's talking to born-again believers. And the implication is that anyone apart from Christ is dead in their sins. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can understand it? Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and our most righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. It doesn't say our wicked deeds. It says our most righteous deeds are even like a filthy garment before the Lord. Right? God knows the heart. He knows the motives. Even our righteous deeds are a filthy rag. What is the conclusion then, friends? Who are the sick in Scripture? Every single one of us. All of humanity. Every man, every woman, following from Adam and the curse in the garden on down through humanity, every single human being is the spiritually sick. All of us have the disease. And I just want you to imagine, here's the scenario being played out. Imagine if every person in the world obtained an actual disease, but you could only tell that you had it if you examined yourself. And therefore, only those who examined themselves would know that they had it and would go to the doctor to be healed of it. Well, I think it's a fitting analogy for this scenario because he's not distinguishing between those who are naturally sick and naturally healthy. He's talking about everyone being sick. As another analogy, God actually gave us an analogy that's wonderful. In Numbers 21, the people of Israel are in the wilderness, and yet God is in his mercy providing manna for them day after day, bread on the ground that they can eat, and these people are complaining against God. He's just delivered them out of Egypt from Pharaoh, and yet they're saying, oh, this miserable manna. Isn't there anything else we can eat, Lord? We miss Egypt. 
And so the Lord responds and he sends a curse among the people by way of snakes. And it says the snakes bit every single one of them. Okay, so every person in the colony has been bitten by a venomous, poisonous snake. That was the judgment of God on them. And yet it doesn't end there. He's not just a judging and a wrathful and a just God, but he's also merciful. He says to Moses, Moses, take a staff and carve out a snake on it and hold it up. And when the people look upon the snake, they will be healed. In other words, Moses, there's nothing they can do to rid themselves of this cure. They have to stop and look and trust by looking upon the staff. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? And really, in the same way, friends, that's a picture of what's going on in Matthew chapter 9. It's, the, it's, again, not the scenario of those who are spiritually sick and those who are naturally spiritually healthy. He's talking about everyone, and here's what he's driving at. And listen closely. He's talking about our own view of self. Jesus is driving at how you view yourself. He's driving at the recognition of one's own plague and sickness that is within us all. Do you think you're well off on your own? Then you don't go to a doctor, do you? And so back to Matthew chapter 9, in this one verse parable, Jesus is putting himself forward as the doctor. He is likening himself to the great physician, which is a name that we see for him. And he's driving at the fact that he can only help those who come to him with a legitimate need. You have to recognize your need before coming to him. And bear in mind, by this point, Jesus was already physically healing people, right? He's already physically healing people. And sometimes he would do it just out of mercy and compassion. But I want to point out another example. If you want, you can turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 10, or you can just listen. And here's the point in this passage is that many of Jesus' physical healings were to point to the fact that he was the spiritual healer as well. In Mark 2, verses 1 to 10, we have a story recorded of Jesus' interaction with a lame man. He's in a synagogue. They bring him in through the roof. Jesus, seeing his faith, says, says to the man that his sins are forgiven, which was something only God could do. And in order to prove his ability to forgive sins, in verse 10, he says this. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins... And again, he's speaking to a lame man. I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And at once, the man stood up, picked up his pallet, and left. Jesus demonstrated his ability to forgive sins. He demonstrated his divine nature as the Son of God and Messiah by healing this man's physical infirmity to point to the fact that he was the ultimate spiritual healer. Jesus is the greatest physician that alone possesses the ability to heal us of our greatest need, which is the restoration of our souls to God. Or in a pithy saying, Jesus is in the business of forgiveness, right? Jesus is in the business of forgiveness. Unlike earthly doctors, he is able to at once heal anyone and everyone who comes to him. In other words, everyone who recognizes their spiritual need and comes to him will be healed. And again, unlike current doctor's offices, there's no waiting lines. There's no paperwork. There's no appointments that need to be scheduled out months in advance. He will heal at an instance. But you've got to recognize the, the curse first. You've got to recognize that there's a sickness. 
Now, when it comes to spiritual healing, you should know something else too, and it's that Jesus doesn't discriminate. He doesn't discriminate. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, it says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's no age discrimination, there's no economic status, there is no race or gender qualifications. Anyone and everyone who wants to come to him will be saved. Now, does that mean that there are conditions? No, there are conditions. And the key holdup is like we've been saying, you must recognize your need for him. Recognizing, in a sense, the camouflage cancer that dwells within every man and woman's bones. Now, this, cam- this cancer is camouflaged because some allow it to be. And yet God's word is, in a sense, to use an analogy, the CT scan that reveals the sickness. It is the cancer scan that shows the results. James calls it the mirror that reflects into the man's soul. So the problem is not that the cancer is actually camouflaged, but people deceive themselves into thinking that there's no problem and thereby live as though it were camouflaged. And you you don't want to know why? It's because people don't want to talk about sin. People don't want to talk about sin, especially their own sin. I mean, who in here would be excited if someone came up to you and began to list out, oh, you are a wretch, you are dead in your sins, you can't do anything good, you're worthless, you just deserve the worst possible things ever. Right? No one wants to hear that, particularly from a person. And yet, this is what the requirement is for salvation, It's the only way to eternal life is by recognizing sin and turning to Jesus as Savior. Where sin is minimized, the need for a Savior is minimized. Where sin is minimized, grace is minimized. To put this simply and bluntly, for those who fail to recognize and admit their sickness, Jesus cannot help you. He's of no help. And therefore, he says in Matthew 9, verse 12, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Isn't this great? Do you guys see the profundity of God's word, of Jesus' words here? Well, here's the incredible part. This isn't even the most profound section yet, in my opinion. I want to go into point three now, which is the truth about sin. And look at verse 13. Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, says this. He says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And now I want to ask this question, and this is really a question for all of us, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. The question is this. What bearing does the Old Testament passage have on this conversation? Jesus quotes the Old Testament, right? He brings in Hosea chapter 6, And why is he quoting this passage to the Pharisees? If you're like me and you're reading your Bible and you come across, and you're in the New Testament, you come across an Old Testament quote, to my shame, I kind of used to just read through it and I'd kind of skip over it and get back to the New Testament uh, letter or narrative or whatever it was. But I believe it was Jim Carlson, who was at NBC and Dry Creek, who emphasized to me the importance of honing in on that Old Testament quote. He said, it's not a sub point, but it is perhaps the main point in many passages. And friends, I want to submit to you that in order to really grasp what's going on here, 
We need to go back to the Old Testament and understand this passage. So from Matthew, flip back to the Old Testament to the book of Hosea. It's after Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, way after Psalms and Proverbs in the Minor Prophets. The book of Hosea in chapter 6. And as you're turning there, you should know that when Jesus quotes a verse... He's not pulling it out of context. In other words, he's not making something up and saying something in some foreign and obscure way to the original context. He's not just using a verse however he wants. Jesus was a scholar. He knew his Bible well. His Bible was only the Old Testament, but he knew it well. And I want to submit to you this, that every time that Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he uses it in the same way that the Old Testament author used it. Now, the book of Hosea was written in 750 B.C., which was 750 years before Jesus was born. And Hosea was a prophet called from God to minister to the people of Israel. He was to minister both the judgment and yet the mercy and patience and love of God. Oh, my goodness, you've got to read Hosea sometime. Hosea chapter 3, you've got Hosea and Gomer. Such a wonderful picture of God's patience and love and forgiveness of Israel. In any case, though, uh, <clears throat> this, was, this is the context of the book of Hosea. And you should know this. When a New Testament person would quote an Old Testament verse, many times they were quoting it with the entire passage in mind. So when Jesus is on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually referring to the entire Psalm 22 and linking himself with that psalm. In the same way, Jesus is having this entire passage in mind. So I want to start in verse 1, and this is going to blow your socks off. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Do you guys see the parallel already? Do you realize what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 9? He's talking about healing and sickness. In his conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus refers to himself as the physician. And now he's quoting Hosea chapter 6, which is ironically speaking of healing, verse 1. And I want to ask, who is the healer in verse 1 of Hosea 6? It says, come, let us return to the Lord. Yahweh, the one true God who created all the heavens, all the stars, every person on earth. He is the healer. Jesus is equating himself with God. He's linking himself with God by claiming to have the spiritual power to heal and then linking himself with this passage where God heals. This is a blatant claim of deity from Christ. Look again at verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He's wounded us, but he will bandage us. And just like we've been saying, sin is hard to deal with. It's hard to humble oneself and turn to God. You might even say it hurts a bit. It certainly hurts the pride. And it brings about judgment from God. And yet in the same manner as Matthew 9, Hosea is speaking of the people being wounded by God. God exercised judgment on this people in Hosea's day, in like manner that the Pharisees were going to be judged. And yet, like I said, God's not only just, he's not only a wrathful God towards sin, he's also merciful. Look at verse 2. It says, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And here's the principal connection. In order to be healed, 
Someone must recognize their wounds. They must recognize their sickness. Again, in Hosea's context, they had been wounded, but now Hosea points them to the great healer, to the great physician in a sense. And in Matthew's context, in the same way, Jesus is pointing out the fact that only those who recognize their spiritual sickness can actually be healed. Friends, the point is the same. Hosea 6 and Matthew 9. Yes, Jesus is the pinnacle and climax of this spiritual restoration. But the same thing was happening in Hosea's day and age. Now, what is Hosea's exhortation to the people? Let's keep reading. I'm hopefully teaching you how to study the Bible as we're doing this. What is Hosea's exhortation? In other words, how does one go from being spiritually sick or spiritually dead to having spiritual life? Look at verse 3. He says, so, in verse 3, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Knowing the Lord is the crux of the matter. God spoke through Jeremiah and in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 verse 34, he hit on the same thing when he said, they will not teach a man again to say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least. Again, this is foreseeing the day when Israel would all trust in God as their savior and be a believing people group. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus is talking to those who were religious, but their hearts were far from him. And he says this, he says, away from me, I never knew you. In Philippians 3.10, Paul lists all of his religious credentials. I was a this and this and this and this. And then he says, but I count them all as dung for the sake of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. David was called a man after God's own heart. Because David knew the Lord. Enoch walked with God because he knew the Lord. Friends, knowing the Lord is the, is the path to being healed. It's knowing the Lord. Now, still in Hosea, this was Hosea's de- desire for the people. But how had the people responded? Verse 4, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Let me ask, how loyal is a morning cloud or the morning dew? In my study Bible, I just had written in the margin, not good, right? Uh, Pretty flaky, to say the least. And so he is, in a sense, condemning them because although God was willing to heal, they had not recognized and turned to the Lord as their healer. And in the same way in the New Testament, the great prophet And the great spokesperson of God, the Son of God, Jesus, is pleading with the Pharisees. He's warning the religious leaders. Again, these were the people of God that eventually there was a judgment coming for their disobedience. They had created their own system of works-based righteousness and they had neglected actually knowing the Lord and having a relationship with him. In Matthew, then, Jesus is not doing something totally new to what the prophet said. He's not changing the meaning. He's not reinterpreting Hosea to say that it's even about him. He's simply enlightening the meaning of the Old Testament passage and applying its significance to his contemporary situation. In other words, he's saying exactly what the prophet said and applying it to his day and age. Notice the same pattern in verse 5. Therefore, I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. God here again declares judgment through the pen of Hosea. 
And this did actually happen. There was actually judgment that was delivered. And it's in the same way that God in flesh, Jesus, is declaring judgment to the Pharisees who would follow in Israel's same mistake. And this leads to verse 6, which is the verse that Jesus actually quoted. He says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God wasn't after a sacrifice. He wasn't after ritualism. He wasn't after religious ceremonies, but he was after loyalty and knowledge of him. He was after steadfast love of him. Now again, this is a poetry. The Bible's written in different forms of literature. Hosea is in poetry, and we've got some parallelism going here. So you've got loyalty paralleling knowledge of God, and you've got sacrifice paralleling burnt offerings. And so in other words, sacrifice and burnt offerings summarize religious works, and yet loyalty and knowledge of God summarize what? And what do they point to? What is knowledge of God? What is this referring to? Well, Hosea's already talked about it, right? In verse 3, he says, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. So even in verse 6, he's talking about knowing God personally and intimately. And friends, here's the message I want you to hear, is that God wants us to know him. He wants us to turn from our self-righteous, works-based religion. He wants us to recognize our sin and need for him. And he wants us to know him. And he stands there with his arms open, willing to forgive and willing to heal all who will do this. Had the nations in Hosea done this? No, right? Verse 4, we saw they hadn't done it. They were flaky like the morning dew. Had the Pharisees done this? No, they hadn't. They made the same mistake that the people of Israel had made. They hadn't trusted in the Lord and known him. They had trusted in their own righteousness instead. And that's why Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 9, go and learn what this means. Right? That was his way of saying, you know what this says, but go and learn what it actually means. Pharisees knew this passage. They would have probably known it by heart. But Jesus calls them on the carpet and says, you don't really know what this means because if you did, your life would look a lot different. And I just think as a point of implication, how convicting is this? On the one hand, I can so quickly read through Scripture and totally miss the point. I can totally just put it in my brain and miss the heart of what God is trying to say to me. On, the, on another hand, even as a born-again Christian Can we trust in our own religious deeds at times to earn favor before God? And friends, here's my fear, is that there's some of you who think you're a Christian, but you're trusting in your own religious deeds. You may be at MSU, you may be at MBC, and yet the reason that you think you're accepted before God is because you go to church and read your Bible and pray and don't cuss. God is not after your religious deeds to be accepted That's not how you get healed of this camouflage cancer. It's by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Now, let's return to Matthew chapter 9. And I want to close this passage out by reading verse 13 again. Jesus said, But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for... I did not come to call sinners, or I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What's Jesus' point? 
Well, it's the same point in Hosea. The Pharisees, like the Israelites, had established their own system of ceremonies and they were trying to earn their own salvation. And really, Jesus comments on this at the end by flipping it on its head by saying, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. And if you're like me, you recognize, well, that's me. I fall into that camp. So that's an encouraging verse to see. Now, here's an interesting fact. In the parallel passage to this, you got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. And they're synoptic because they all talk about a lot of the same stories. In the parallel passage from Luke, in Luke 5.32, it actually says this. He came to call sinners to repentance. And so... I want to ask this question before jumping to a conclusion. Who are the sinners? Are there two groups of people here? No, right? There's one group of people. Everyone is a sinner, yet he's hitting on our own recognition of it. And what he's doing is he's calling them to repentance. And friends, he's calling me and you to repentance. He's calling us to repentance from our sin and to trusting in him. And if there's one thing you get from this, I want you to understand, without recognizing sin and turning to Jesus, it's impossible to be saved and go to heaven. Now, I want to jump to the end, and I want to leave you with five implications from this passage. And hopefully there's something for everyone here. Number one, from just these four verses, 10, 11, 12, 13, we see five, at least five things. Number one, we see that Jesus is God. right? Jesus claimed the power to forgive sins, which is something that only God alone can do. Further, he linked himself with Hosea 6, which is where God offers to heal the people, and in the same way, Jesus offers healing. And I just want to ask, have you recognized Jesus as God in your life? Have you, let me put it another way, submitted to the lordship of Christ in your life? Friends, I recognize this may be the only time you come here this semester, right? We fed you. Of course you're going to come, okay? I don't want to miss an opportunity, though, for you to examine yourself and see, have I submitted to Christ as my Savior and as my Lord? He is God. That's just the the indicative truth. He's God. What have you done with that? Implication number two. Jesus calls sinners to himself. And again, I just want to reiterate, the call has been issued. It's been recorded in Scripture and preserved from the time of Jesus all the way until today and all the way until Jesus comes back. And this call sounds forth from this text tonight to you that Jesus is calling sinners to repent to himself. And he is willing to forgive and heal anyone and everyone who will do that. You think your sin's too bad? Look at verse 9. You want to know who Jesus called to himself? Check this out. As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth and said to him, follow me. So he got up and followed him. Friends, do you realize the author, the co-author with the Holy Spirit of this gospel was a tax collector? He was a traitor to his own people and a traitor to God. And yet Jesus called him as a disciple. Do not believe the lie that your sin is too bad or that you've done too much wrong or it's too late. It's a lie from Satan. God will forgive even the worst of us. Jesus calls sinners to himself. Third implication is this. Jesus informs what our gospel message should be. And I want to ask, what message are you sharing, if you're sharing, regarding salvation? What are you recruiting people to? Are you recruiting them to morality, to church, to being a better person? Or are you recruiting them to the great healer, 
to the great physician in the person of Jesus Christ? Does your gospel include recognition of sin and exaltation of Christ as the solution of their sin? Do you tell people that they're dead in their sin and need to be awakened by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit? This is what Jesus modeled for us, right? Jesus models for us how to share the gospel in this passage. Implication number four, Jesus used the Old Testament within the range of meaning and significance that the Old Testament author intended it. In other words, in the progressive revelation of the Bible, the text in Hosea, and every other text for that matter, had a meaning in history. It had a meaning grammatically that you could study and arrive at. It had a literal meaning that you could understand by reading it. And I want to ask, did Jesus reinterpret that and do away with that? No, he upheld it. He affirmed it, and he, uh, he didn't change the meaning, but he applied it in a certain context with a certain significance. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't change the meaning, but he applied it to a certain significance. The significance of that passage bore weight on the scenario with Jesus and the Pharisees. And so the implication is this. Be careful how you handle the Word of God, right? However Jesus interpreted the Old Testament is how I want to interpret the Old Testament. And from this example, we've seen how he interpreted it. Fifthly is this. Knowing our Bible is crucial to interpretation. And that kind of blends off of the fourth. And again, friends, I recognize we're all going to be at different areas in our understanding of Scripture. I don't want this to discourage you. Wherever you're at, you can read the Bible and you can understand it. But I also want to encourage you that wherever you're at, as you read more Scripture and you understand it more, it's number one, just going to help your interpretation of it. And number two, it's going to increase your knowledge of God, which is going to increase your love of God and your worship of God, which is going to lead to a godly life. You don't just become godly overnight, but what you know impacts how you live. And so, study your Bible. Lastly, the main point is that Jesus calls sinners. And I just want to encourage you, if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, that you would do so even this evening, that you would call out to him as your Lord and your Savior, that you would recognize this sin that dwells within your bones and you would turn to him as your healer and redeemer. Let's close in prayer. The band can come up. Father, this is a serious talk, Lord. I recognize it's not necessarily fun. Lord, it's not a giddy environment. But Lord, the, the stakes are too high. God, the stakes are too high. We are talking about eternity. Lord, you have set eternity in the heart of man and we will all face you in judgment one day. And Lord, you will separate those who know you and those who don't. And Lord, as we come together, my heart is burdened because I know there are some here who do not know you. Lord, would you stir their hearts now? Would you pierce them? Would you quicken them? to believe, God. Bring them low so that you might bring them high, Lord. Lord, would they recognize their sin, that they would turn to Christ in repentance and believe and be born again, Lord. Would you give them new life? Lord, would you give them a newfound desire to want to read the, the scriptures, Lord, to want to know you more, to want to live a life that's pleasing to you, not to earn salvation, but because of salvation. Lord, give them a desire to plug into a local church, to plug in with a group of believers that they can encourage and likewise be encouraged. 
Lord, for believers tonight, I pray that this would reignite our passion for the gospel. Lord, we've just seen a wonderful truth that Jesus has healed us. Lord, he is our great physician. What a marvelous truth, God. Would this stir our bones to want to live a life of service and devotion to you. God, it truly is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray for this group, God. Would you keep them? Don't let them fall, Lord. Don't let them fall away. Keep them and grow us this semester through the study of your word. God, we do not care about being cool. We don't care about relativity. Lord, we care about godliness. Make that our desire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.